Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. This feels familiar. I welcome you both here at Canon and those that are streaming. When I look down, I see Skip Johnson, Pastor Emeritus. It sounds like some weird species that has been <laughs> invited back for a show. Okay. <clears throat> I want to invite you to breathe deep. Let go of whatever's been chasing you this week. I want to invite you simply to rest in this particular time and space so that a larger story may invite you to participate. Some of you know I enjoy digging in the dirt for fun. I volunteered with paleontology digs and fossil quarries in Montana to unearth dinosaur bones. Also signed on with archaeology projects for a chance to assist in uncovering artifacts from centuries ago. Last summer, I was fortunate to be able to be part of an archaeological dig at a site of a Cistercian Abbey in Wales, known as Strata, Florida, a monastery that had been constructed in the 12th century. Prior to last summer, I'd never heard of Strata, Florida, name which means Vale of Flowers, but I learned a lot about its history, its significance in the region during four weeks of a dig. The Abbey property, which is located in a rural county of central Wales, was a major part of this community until Henry VIII took an interest in their lands and their wealth in 1539. Nationwide, the king brought about the act known to history as the Dissolution, dissolving the legal claims of Strata, Florida, along with all those of the other abbeys across England, all their lands were seized by the crown and sold. Their goods and furnishings were taken to London, lead stripped from the roofs, gold, liturgical objects melted down. The buildings themselves were dismantled. Eventually, in the 1600s, there was a handsome two-story manor house that was constructed directly beside the abbey ruins, and caretaker families began to live here as stewards of the property for absent landowners. There were various families that resided in this building over hundreds of years. It eventually became known as the Stedman House after one family continually occupied it for several generations. And this ancient home still stands. I would walk by it every day as our fieldwork group made our way to the dig site. I paused there one day to just examine it, look at it, look closely. While it's ruled unstable as a dwelling for living, it's still intact. There are plans for its renovation by the Strata Florida Trust that was overlooking our dig, overseeing our dig. Houses stone, two stories high, with windows that overlook the acres of partial walls and grass-covered rubble still remaining from the destruction of the abbey. When the abbey was disassembled, 
Many of the stones that had been carefully shaped by stonemasons and used to build it were unofficially borrowed. That's the official archaeological term. These fine finished stones from the abbey were removed from the rubble, from the walls, hauled away by carts and put into places in use and buildings all over the county. This was excellent building material, which you can use again. Building stones from the ancient abbey walls had also been used in the Stedman house I was standing in front of. You could easily spot them by the distinctive color, the workmanship of the stones. I found myself noticing them in the construction. There's one, there's another, there's several right there around that window. Now, as I was counting the stones, the supervising archaeologist walked up beside me. He knew my background as a United Methodist minister. You know, he offered, John Wesley spent the night there in 1769. Whoa. He was correct. I checked. <laughs> His lodging in the Stedman house is mentioned in one of Wesley's diary entries when he was traveling and preaching across Wales. He stayed there on August the 9th, 1769, a Wednesday night. It was stormy. He took shelter with the family that was here at the time. It's been a busy week for Wesley. On Saturday the 5th of August, four days earlier, Wesley had begun something of an expansive experiment for the movement of Methodism. And he had appointed two ministers to travel across the Atlantic to the British colonies, colonies that would give birth to the United States in just a few decades. Thinking about his being here, I wondered if he had strolled through the ruins of the abbey. Wesley preaching had been well received in Wales, while by training and education, Wesley was part of the establishment Anglican Church. His critics and his admirers claimed that he preached in the style of a dissenter. Dissenter. Dissenters at the time were pastors willing to raise questions about what we think we can understand and know about God. They disagreed with their fellow Anglicans who wanted to insist there was only one way to understand God's will and God's work. To these dissenters, God wasn't rigid Dissenters did not want to define the faith as fixed for all time. There was something lively about it and enlivening. To those Anglicans who wanted an establishment faith that saw no reason to ask questions about interpretation or beliefs, Wesley was skeptical. God is not static. Wesley's own personal experience had taught him that. The Bible speaks repeatedly of a God we can comprehend only partially, who refuses to be pinned down, who gives a name from a burning bush to Moses as, I will be whom I will be. A name more comfortable as an active verb than a fixed noun. 250 years later, we are continuing to grapple with God's activity in the world and the forward movement of redemptive grace in all our lives. And Wesley was all about that. 
John Wesley offered three laws for holy living. We're considering number two this morning. Do good. This is not a simple declaration of be good, like some passive mantle you cloak around your shoulders as you sit in a rocker and smile at the passing world as the clock ticks. Do good. It's a proactive extension of the self and the will. It speaks to us of personal agency. This is something you can affect the world with in your actions. It affirms that. Your actions, your prayers, your resources. To do good is to be other-oriented rather than self-focused. Do good. To assert this is to recognize that you have within yourself the ability to adjust the trajectory of your living during this brief window of a lifetime in which we have been gifted and dedicated to the creation of goodness, actions that enlarge the good in the world and do not diminish it. Do good is an invitation into an act of holy alchemy asking you to bring about positive change that benefits others and underscoring that doing this puts you into alignment with what is holy and what is sacred about our life experience, our shared experience in this brief window of time we occupy together. Wesley intuited an enlivened connectivity of the gospel message that ties us to one another in mutuality. On the most basic level, our beings are created for caring relationships with each other. We exist in this hardwired universe that is partial to being part of community. Our actions reach beyond ourselves, spinning out links and forming a redemptive web that supports the goodness of a shared life. And when we do do this good, and we touch another's story, we contribute to the resonance of another's existence, and suddenly their story in a reciprocal way becomes part of ours in return. Once you have shared an act of goodness with another, you become changed. You become part of a larger collective story. And you all know this. You've experienced it. When you have traveled when you have broken friends with strangers in cities thousands of years, thousands of miles away from your home, or when you've contributed time or resources to repair brokenness of lives in another part of the globe, can you ever again look at a weather map of the state, the country, the globe, and not feel a connection as you learn of storms and snow and heat, as you learn of disasters and war and you see the map showing this particular space and something going on, have you not had the thought, I wonder how they're doing? I wonder how they are. Some of us were in Israel last March. Part of our program allowed us to have a meal with a Christian Palestinian family on the West Bank. Annie and I, my sister and my brother-in-law, had supper with a family that had two kids, The dad and mom were teachers at a Lutheran school. They prepared dinner for us in their home, and we sat with them around the table. We talked about dreams. We learned about struggles. Their home church 
is the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. I cannot look at the news from Israel without seeing their faces. You've heard me mention this before, but there has been a longitudinal study at Harvard on happiness and well-being that's been ongoing since the 1930s. The study was seeking to understand the answer to a basic question. What is the key to a good life? Researches initially started with a group of Harvard undergraduates. A group gradually expanded to include hundreds of others of similar age from nearby neighborhoods in Boston, all up and down the socioeconomic spectrum. They all received a battery of tests, evaluations, interviews, and then the research is out to follow up with another set of interviews two years later. So they received this all through their 20s, into their 30s, into their 40s, into their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, throughout all the vicissitudes of life, vocational pursuits, intimacy, medical challenges, births and deaths, illnesses, times of thriving, times of shadow. New cohorts have been added to the state over the years to expand on what is being learned. Some of the original group are now in their 90s, and they're still being interviewed every two years. All the evidence points to similar conclusion. Research has shown that beyond your life accomplishments, beyond money and wealth, athletic prowess, beyond titles and degrees, what gave the most sense of life satisfaction as well as contributed to health and longevity was being actively connected in positive ways to other people, doing for others and reaching out past your own story, laughing, loving, joining together in collaborative activity, The worst thing was sitting alone in isolation. Doing good, being connected to others is a necessary requirement for living well. The Bible is full of suggestions of what this doing good can look like. I just chose two scriptures. I could have chosen hundreds. There are broad categories to be discovered in Scripture passages or throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. Y'all leave me wondering if God is not sitting back, smiling with anticipation and wondering, let's see what good they can imagine into being today. Micah 6.8, always a good beginning. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, kindness, compassion, and to walk humbly with your God? I do want to comment briefly on the command of walking humbly. Decades ago, I heard a pastor point out that at a minimum, if you open yourself to the discipline of coming to church on Sundays, walking through those doors, entering into the community space of worship with other men and women, you are admitting that there is something in the universe larger than yourself. And there is a story bigger than you that's inviting your participation. Romans 12.2 offers explicit instructions. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Discernment is part of the package. You are required to think and to ponder. And you're asked to differentiate yourself from the values of the world, a world which deals in babbles and bright lights and golden calves to distract us from the deeper concerns of living. We're all familiar with the Exodus story from the Old Testament that carries the people of God out of Egypt. It's a foundational story of identity central to the biblical text. I read through the narrative one afternoon and discovered five different moments in the journey when the people asked Moses, can we go back to Egypt? Better the chains of Egypt than the uncertainty of the wilderness and freedom. Remember that wonderful scene with Edward G. Robinson, Edgar G. Robinson and Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments? I flash this in my mind every once in a while. He plays the character of Dathan, the Jewish-Egyptian merchant who isn't too happy with the wilderness, and he keeps saying, Moses, let's go back, you know. Do you bring us out here to die? All of us have some version of Edward G. Robinson on our shoulder whispering in our ear. The golden calf glitters as a distraction. The lights of Egypt shine like diamonds in the night and are luring and inviting with fault promise. Doing good requires being thoughtful and reflective. I mentioned something in one of my occasional temporary people of exile blogs about the research of Daniel Kahneman, psychologist, recipient of the 2002 Nobel Prize for Economics. His life work has been focused on understanding human judgment and decision-making. One of the many insights that emerged from his work came from a distinguishment with two major types of cognition that our brain uses on a daily basis. What Kahneman describes as fast thinking and slow thinking. Fast thinking is the label Kahneman gives to those automatic acts of cognition that they allow us to drive a car to make instant evaluations. Research reveals that our brains tend to be lazy. If allowed free reign, they prefer to search for the simplest way to route information, solve problems, looking for the neural path of least resistance. Fast thinking will choose easy over hard, simple over complex, sometimes choose a position based on the whims of the crowd or the media, and then looking for facts that support the judgment. Fast thinking likes binaries. It's either all this or it's all that. I don't want to think about what's in between. Slow thinking takes longer and engages the higher analytical brain functions where our principles for thoughtful living reside. Sometimes requires deliberation to bring these to the surface before we act or decide. Slow thinking may be exemplified by the act of taking a deep breath or counting to 10 before acting after fast thinking has flooded the mind with emotion and that plan of fight, flight, or freeze. When the brain has rendered an immediate snap judgment because we've heard others talking about a popular answer. Slow thinking is a second or even a third more appraising look 
that is open to discovering missing details that could change our thinking. Being a Christian requires the activation of slow thinking when doing good. The world is complex and requires thoughtful discernment. First perceptions can be wrong no matter how right they might feel. No matter how many times a position may repeat on TikTok feeds, it can be mistaken. For important decision-making, thinking must be privileged over feeling. For the church of Jesus Christ, slow thinkers are necessary and welcome. Slow thinking is an invitation to blend one's thinking with a biblical story that has been braided into the church for 2,000 years as we seek together after God revealed through the life of Jesus Christ and to make decisions that expand grace and good and do not diminish it. The Abbey in Wales, where I was involved on the dig, been founded around the year 1200. The first morning when we arrived on site, we received an orienting tour. Quentin, the lead archaeologist who had worked at the site for decades, led us through the beautiful western doorway, which is still standing. The abbey had been carefully situated in a rural river valley surrounded by low green hills. At one time, there had been a bell tower that thrust itself skyward. The abbey had been by far the most spectacular building of the valley and would have been visible for miles. The abbey did good, becoming a place for education, for receiving care, receiving food, both spiritual and for the body. Pilgrims came to pray here and to be blessed. We were led into the body of the abbey across the grass-covered walkway of once what once had been the central aisle of the church. All abbeys during this historical time had been constructed according to a well-established template. We could have viewed it from a drone. The architectural footprint would have been one of a huge cross where the arms of the extended transept met right at the center. There was an intersection where the monks had gathered for liturgies. We now gathered there as a group. Before us at the top of the cross outlined were the remains of the high altar. But where we were standing, right at this intersection, there was an odd depression in the ground several feet deep, several feet wide. They had been dug almost in the middle where the transepts met together, almost right in the center. This depression was lined with stone at its bottom. There were entry points where water had passed through. Quentin asked us, what do you think is the purpose of this stone-lined depression? Some of us guessed baptism. Some of us guessed a foot-washing ritual. Well, those are good guesses, Quentin answered. But look at the alignment of the construction. The Cistercians that built this abbey were master builders. But the stonework around this was out of alignment with the walls of the church. And it was. It was angled slightly differently. We were stumped. Went and paused for effect and went on. You know, ground-penetrating radar in this area has shown us something of an anomaly. There are outlines of another construction beneath this one. He told us that it's now believed that this abbey had been erected over the ruins of an earlier church building that had been here hundreds of years earlier. And the water that passed through the bottom of this 
construction, the water had been from the current of a sacred stream that had been channeled through here. He then walked us outside and we wove our way through grave markers in an expansive cemetery that surrounded the abbey on two sides. He paused at a low rise and he said, look, you notice this swell that runs in the ground between these two trees. That's not a natural feature. It's been constructed on this landscape. We think that it's part of an earthen enclosure that one time went all the way around this site. See, we think at one time this was a holy site for community where they gathered for hundreds or thousands of years around a sacred spring. They were here. Then another earlier church was here. And then the abbey was here. And now we're here. I was struck silent as I thought about what all of this meant. This search for community doing good was not a recent invention, discovery, but as part of a communal desire to seek the sacred and to approach God. I found myself thinking about the worship services of the monks who had lived and served at Strata, Florida. As they sang hymns and read scripture, were there moments of silence in the daily liturgy when they could hear the murmur of the sacred spring pass beneath the floors of their sanctuary? Did they ever think about all the generations that had gathered at this spot before, desiring to know God and to contemplate the fundamental questions of living? And I wondered, when the abbey was dissolved and its stones from its walls were redistributed, did the men and women that incorporated and blended the stones into new buildings think upon the story they were linking themselves to? So I'll also ask you, when you gather here on Sunday mornings for prayer and contemplation, do you take away cornerstones of the gospel to build into your own lives and to share with others? Do you hear the murmur of the Holy Spirit flowing through the foundations of this worship space? May it be so. Do good. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.